Hello and welcome to The Spectator Podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman. With plummeting approval ratings and street protests stretching into their fifth month, Emmanuel Macron's presidency seems to be going from bad to worse. So what happened to France's golden child of global liberalism? Plus, are MPs whining too much? And is TV binge-watching becoming an epidemic? First up, where did it all go wrong for Emmanuel Macron? When he was elected two years ago, France's president was held up as proof that charismatic centrist politics could beat back the rising tide of European populism. However, it now seems his only major achievement has been to unite the French people around a single issue, their distaste for him. In this week's cover story, Jonathan Miller unpacks what went wrong and what it means for the future of France and Europe. He joins me now along with Sophie Pedder, Paris Bureau Chief for The Economist and author of Révolution Française, a biography of Macron, to discuss. So Jonathan, we know quite a bit about embattled and incompetent leaders here in Britain, but you say things are much worse in France. Well, it has to be it has to be said that Britain has been through a wrenching period, which I've been observing from France, of, of debate and contention and disagreement and argument. But for the most part, it's been conducted in Parliament or in the press. And when it has been on the street, it's been peaceful. And I'm walking over here to the spectator offices this morning, there was no whiff of tear gas, nor carcasses of burned out Porsches on the streets, nor uh, nor policemen firing uh, rubber bullets at demonstrators. In France, uh, on the other hand, I think that there's a certain kind of complacency about the situation um, where for 21 weeks in a row, uh, there has been uh, really chaos. Uh, there have been uh, 10 to 12 people killed, there have been dozens maimed. The the discourse has been very hostile and aggressive and threatening. Several thousand people apparently have been arrested. And it really strikes me as, as kind of odd that President Macron should be taking a somewhat condescending approach to the difficulties of the British when he really only has to look out of his window at the Elysee to see that uh, France is in big trouble, that his uh, economic reform program has really not budged unemployment at all, that the people are very unhappy with him, that the country is, is sitting really perched on the edge of a recession. And yet he takes this very aggressive uh, and unsympathetic attitude. And so I think that uh, I'm not trying to suggest in any way that Britain has any lessons to teach the French. I think we're both in the slough of despond in many ways. But I think it is kind of unseemly for, for Macron to be condescending towards Britain. Sophie, do you recognise that picture or do you think that Macron has achieved a great deal during his term? Look, I mean, you know, I'm not going to deny for a minute that France over the last few months has been through the biggest political crisis for a very long time. The, the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Jacket protests, which emerged in November last year and has uh, gone on indeed for 21 me- weeks, has been has, has really been a, a very... A, great challenge not just to Macron's presidency but also to the you know French institutions to the, the concept of representative democracy so you know all that is very clear and, and everyone has seen the images on television what I would disagree with though is the idea that he's been complacent about this what's been interesting to my mind is 
how Macron has tried to uh, deal with this protest. Now, I'm not dealing, talking about the law and order issue. And incidentally, when you talk about people being killed, let's, not be, let's be clear, these weren't killed by the police. These were killed in accidents during the protest. But the point I'm trying to make is that there, has been, there have been two responses um, to this. One of them was the first time in a long time, uh, Macron, in fact, in the first time in his presidency, he's had to give in on policy grounds. And that's to say he cancelled the fuel tanks in increase on petrol prices, which was a carbon tax he'd introduced and was was increasing. He's gone back on that and, and, and then came up with a sort of 10 billion uh, euro uh, package of income support measures, which, you know, he had not planned to put in place at all. So, you know, he has responded. But much more importantly than that, to my mind, is this, the debate that he's put in place. Now, you know, over the last three months, this debate, when it, it has been going on across France, it's now come to an end this week. Uh, it started in January. And it's involved, you know, you know 1.9 million contributions to an online forum. And very, most interesting in a way to me, it has been the way Macron has shifted his governing style. Now, at the beginning of the debate, it was mocked pretty much and dismissed as a kind of, uh, you know, useless exercise. But actually, you know, what people have seen, I think, is a president who's prepared to go roll up his sleeves, sit in those debates. They have not been monologues. They have not been lectures. The one I've sat through most recently went on for six hours till midnight. Um, Macron sits there with his notepad. He listens. Uh, he's sort of he's on a plastic chair next to everybody else. And he's he's answering queries. So I think, you know, that in a way that that has been a very interesting tool for sort of trying to diffuse a protest, which has not gone away. But the numbers on the streets are far, far fewer than they were. And, you know, that that that, to my mind, doesn't constitute a complacent reaction to a serious social protest. Now, Jonathan, this is interesting because your description of the debate has, has been quite different. You have claimed it, it is a monologue, and I, I suppose a six-hour-long monologue would be quite tiring for, for a lot of people, even political journalists. Well, the president has uh, is, is, is clearly quite fond of the sound of his own voice, and there's only, I have to admit, if Sophie's actually attended them, I've merely watched quite a few of them on BFM television. And what I see is Macron talking on and on and on, and, and not really listening that much. I mean, yes, people have been able to uh, to file their doléances with the uh, with the town halls, and we've had some at our town hall, and they've been able to go online, which shows a commitment to debate, a little bit uh, similar to posting a comment at the bottom of a newspaper article on the internet. Uh, you know, Sophie obviously is in Paris, and in, in the in, you know inside the peripherie. I'm in the south of France, uh, in one of the poorest departments of France, and I drink coffee every morning with. And, and gendarme and, uh, and, and notaire and all, just ordinary folk. And I have to tell you, they're not really moved at all by this. They don't actually understand what he's talking about. And I would pose to Sophie a question. I mean, I, I, I look back on, on, on great politicians who can bring people together. And often they have a phrase or a, or, 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 or a line that, that somehow catches a hook that can capture the imagination, can inspire and, but in, in, in the literally hundreds of thousands of words that I suspect that Macron has uttered, I cannot recall a single memorable phrase. There's been no, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Uh, there's been no, uh, there's, you know, we shall never surrender. Uh, there's been no inspiration at all. It's, it's been pedagogic, frankly. You know, maybe in Paris uh, people are impressed, but I have to tell you that in the regions people are very, very disillusioned and they don't feel any real hope that things are changing. And the polls make it 
perfectly clear. Most people in France think things have got worse and will continue to get worse. So I don't think that talking is a substitute for policies which will really address the malaise. Now, I'm not sure that there are any policies because I'm not convinced that France really is reformable. But uh, what I do find is that this idea that the Grand Débat National will uh, lead to a resolution is somewhat wishful thinking. That's an interesting point, Sophie. Are there policies, or you say that Macron has shifted his demeanour during this debate, but are there any policies or, or any changes more widely in terms of his rhetoric that have come out of the conclusion of this big debate? Well, we're going to find out that next week because this is obviously the big the big question is what to do and how to respond, uh, how to make the tax system more fair, um, how to encourage greener, more environmentally friendly behaviour without it falling on the burden of those who are least able to pay for it. That's what happened with the carbon tax. But it's, you know, the objective, I think, is, is fairly widely shared. You know, I slightly object to this caricature of me sitting in Paris inside the Périphérique. You know, I've spent a lot of time travelling all over France, talking to Gilles Jean on roundabouts, whether in Provence, whether in Normandy. A chapter on my book was on fractured France, precisely because, you know, the origins of this problem go back to the 2017 presidential election. And that's to say that half of the votes in that election went to Canada who are sort of anti-establishment or populist or anti-European in some way. So, you know, it's been very clear that Macron is not, uh, you know, has, there are lots of people around France that don't, never supported him. And, uh, you know, Marine Le Pen taps into a very deep anti-establishment, far-right trend in France, which uh, wasn't born with, with Macron's arrival on the political scene. So, but just to get back to the response, you know, firstly, it is interesting to see that Macron's poll ratings are very low. They're not as low as Francois Hollande's were, the, the socialist president at this point, and they have actually recovered that now, thanks in part, I think, to the Grand Débat, the Great Debate, up to where they were before the Gilets Jaunes protest. So yes, of course you can find people in the south of France or wherever who dislike him, loathe him, but you know the general view, the general trend has been an improvement. In terms of policy, it's interesting. I mean, I think you know, there has obviously, when this crisis broke out, policymaking went on hold. You know, there was, it was a matter of firefighting, and that that went on for a number of months. But you are beginning to see things coming back. You have Macron had already put in place a reform of the labour market, which has encouraged more. The unemployment rate has come down. There is there is more long term job creation. What I mean by that is people jobs are now being created on a more of a long term basis, and that's absolutely crucial for young people, in, especially who, on the whole, find it very difficult difficult to, to move out of short-term contracts. And because of this re- labour reform, which has reduced the risk to employers of creating long-term contracts, there, have, there has actually been quite a sharp increase in those sorts of jobs being created. So, you know, I think it's just it's just not right to suggest that there has been nothing done on the econ- on economic policy. In fact, France, I mean, just the environment is, is bad for everybody at the moment in Europe and in, in the world more generally. But, you know, the French growth rate is higher than, than the UK's this year. So I, I think it's very hard to talk about this all being an absolute catastrophic failure. I think that's just not right. And just finally, Jonathan, is there anything Macron can do to salvage his reputation, to mend fractured France? I'm not sure that Macron uh, has got many tools left in his kit, and I think it gets to somewhat somewhat to his own personality, which is not one that really connects with people. I think he's not found a voice to connect with people. Um, I, I would go back a little bit, Sophie, on, on this business of, of unemployment improving. I think the, the improvement, the numbers have been very, very small. And, and French unemployment remains double what it is in Britain 
and in Germany. France is extremely vulnerable, and the labor market reforms don't seem to have created huge numbers of, of new jobs where we are. There, are some, uh, there is some growth in the French economy, but I'm not sure it's particularly durable or it can sustain the, uh, the shocks that could come from a, a recession in Germany. And more than anything, the shock of, a, of an untidy Brexit, which could uh, very much destabilize the economy all over France. And of course, the, the, the problems in Italy, which leave French banks hugely exposed. So I don't think France is in a good place at all. I think it's in a terrible place. And I think Macron, perhaps you're right that he's changing his tone and he's listening a bit more. I'm not sure I agree with you. But, but even if you are right, I'm not sure that I've seen anything emerge um, in terms of concrete ideas for dragging France out of the slough that it's been in for 40 years. Thanks, Jonathan and Sophie. Next. Are our politicians too soft? It seems you can't open a paper or turn on the radio these days without hearing an overpaid parliamentarian pining on about how hard a time they're having. At least that's the opinion of Melissa Kite, who says that RMPs need to stiffen those upper lips and crack on with running the country. Otherwise, they risk losing the respect of the public even more. She joins me now with former Tory MP Stuart Jackson. So MPs are up late pretty much every night at the moment, voting, trying to make decisions on indicative votes, which they're not being whipped on. They're trying to understand what Theresa May is actually up to and they're getting very stressed out by it but Melissa you are not at all sympathetic towards this why? I'm not at all sympathetic to them and the main reason is that they didn't need to be in this position I can't understand why they're so upset about making a mess of a process that they didn't need to be having the public voted and the vote was clear in the referendum and then MPs decided they wanted to have an, an extra little private vote of their own which would, would override that referendum so to me it's like they've created a balmy situation from the start and I'm afraid when something is essentially wrong which I think this is then it is never going to end well so they've got themselves into a, a kerfuffle of their own making. Stuart Jackson do you agree with this do you think that they've MPs have brought this on themselves? Yes because this is like a horrible apocalyptic game show uh, they're, they're sort of trying to get through the ruins of the constitution uh, Mrs May is a sort of political typhoid Mary. She's catastrophic uh, undermining of the constitution. Cabinet collective responsibility has gone out the window. Parliament is lots of interest groups fighting each other. The Lords are cranky and angry every week. And basically, Mark Sedwell and Ollie Robbins are running the show. And I can understand the pressure they're under. But as Melissa says, you know, they bought it on themselves. They're trying to mediate this epoch-making decision that the British people have already made. And basically, in a very patronising way, said, we'll take it from here, leave it to the grown-ups. And that's why the public are, are raging angry. But Melissa, you've worked in the lobby, you know MPs' lives and, and what, what they have to, to deal with. And you allude to this in your piece, uh, the uh, the fact that you think that some of them might actually have been on the brink of burnout before the Brexit mess appeared in the Commons. So do you think that an MP's life is mentally toxic anyway? 
Well, I wouldn't want to do it. I mean, it's fairly hideous, you know, and it is quite thankless, so I'll say that in their defence. But the, the sorts of people who do it seem to, a lot of them seem to really like it, and they hardly lead, a, you know, blameless lives. I mean, a lot of them are up to all sorts. Let's not go into that now. But essentially, there's a huge disconnect, I think, which has become plainer than ever, between this bubble at Westminster, who are all sort of getting themselves in a, in, in a twist and sort of talking to each other and going mad and having a collective nervous breakdown and the people out there who were sort of living what I would call more normal lives who are completely clear-headed know exactly what they want to do and so there's this sort of balmy collection of people at Westminster who are going madder and madder for reasons that you know we could talk about all day and then there's the people out in the country who are living essentially quite ordinary lives saying yeah but we can see it quite clearly and so as Stuart was saying you know it seems lunacy that we've handed this decision back to the very group of people who are least psychologically, for whatever reason, able to make any sense of it. Surely the referendum, Stuart, was a sign of MPs' lack of self-esteem given they decided to let the voters make a decision rather than do what they'd been elected and paid to do in the first place. Well, Melissa's right, they did give it to the people, but what we've seen... And I've described it as like the tide going out and you can see the detritus on the bottom of the harbour. How uh, suboptimal and dysfunctional our constitution is. Because so many people in the House of Commons are suffering from kind of Stockholm syndrome. They can't govern themselves. They can't think about what independence, sovereignty, a global trading nation means. They, they just can't cope with it. And of course, Whitehall can't cope with it. The only good thing to come out of this in some respect, perversely, is the Belgium paradox, which is basically if you don't have a government for 18 months, everything goes fantastically well in the economy. You know, we're growing jobs. We've got massive growth in manufacturing. We've got more women than ever in work. Things are going pretty well in the real world, as Melissa says. Unfortunately, in the Lyceum of Lies, the House of Commons, it's becoming more and more apparent that we're not going to get a solution. And I think you have to put it back to the people via a general election. Are you happier now you're not an MP, Stuart? Well, I cease to be an MP overnight and obviously getting brutally fired by the electorate when you didn't expect to be is not the most enervating experience in one's life but you know I live through the expenses crisis and I think this is a lot worse in terms of the impact and the undermining in the faith and trust of elected politicians and the system than, you know, a few people claiming for pot noodles and dog bowls and, you know, moats and all the rest of it. This is much more pervasive and pernicious. So in answer to your question, maybe one day I'd like to go back, but I wouldn't like to go back into this parliament because it's extremely dysfunctional and is not a great advert for our political system. I agree. I mean, I used to be a lobby correspondent, and so I virtually lived at at the House of Commons, and I now work largely from home. And when I went back to do an interview a few nights ago, I I was on Channel 4, and I had to sort of go back to the the scene of uh, the crime that's going on there now. And I just was struck by how mad it all is, having come away from it for a few years, seeing it again, MPs talking about arcane points of law, they were twisting themselves around to see if they could get what they want they all just sounded madder than ever and when you do step away from it and then 
and go back to it, I think you see it much more clearly. And I was actually appalled. You know, I stood in Parliament Square and there were people waving EU flags and playing trombones and the bagpipes and waving Welsh devolution flags and and, and shouting that we should still be in... That was just Anna Soubry. (laughs) It It was just utter madness. And the MPs just didn't seem to notice this at all. They thought it was completely normal. Having said, just... having said that, Melissa, you, I've got to add a caveat that still I believe fundamentally that most members of parliament are decent people trying to do their best for their local yes, community. Yes, but you can see how the madness diligent. would get to you after a while. So while I would agree it's with you on not, that, I, I do think it's... You a get fun- institutionalised in there. Actually, Melissa, MPs do face a lot of abuse and harassment. I mean, Anna Subri, who you mentioned, is is one of the best known examples. But when I talk to MPs, a lot of them don't want to make the threats they've received public because they think it will just encourage more people to come after them and abuse them. Do you feel any sympathy for them on that front? I don't think anybody should be subject to abuse ideally but the problem is when you have this disconnect where people feel totally disempowered I think their feelings do get the better of them and the electorate get angrier and angrier and the way to deal with that ideally obviously we want everyone to behave themselves but unfortunately when you take power away from people and you start having a different conversation at Westminster to the conversation the rest of the country's having if no one will listen to people then obviously ultimately they are elements of the country are going to become abusive because it's you know they just can't stand it any longer and i do think there's a responsibility on everyone to listen to people sufficiently so that we don't get to that point which is a dangerous point i absolutely agree and i think one of the important findings that Professor Matthew Goodwin was highlighting this week is that 54% of people are now saying that Parliament should be sidelined and that they need a, quote, strong man to take over. Well, that is a recipe for a populist tsunami that's going to hit our system in the next few months, certainly at the European elections, if we have them, maybe in if there's a Peterborough by-election and maybe at the forthcoming general election. I, I think we should look at Canada in 1993. The Conservative Party went from 150-odd seats to two seats in one election, first past the post, because they were perceived as having lost touch and they were outflanked by a right-wing party. You know, we laugh at banana republics, but it could happen here. Thanks for that, Melissa and Stuart. And finally, is the TV renaissance ruining our lives? Mark Palmer writes in this week's magazine that an overabundance of good programmes on demand has left him feeling addicted to catch up. He's here with us today, and joining us down the line is broadcaster and TV critic Emma Bullimore. So, Mark, you say that there is too much good TV on at the moment. Well, it's just that I think it's wonderful, of course, that there's great TV and it's making a lot of people happy. My point is that I just think it adds one extra pressure and in that there's so much good TV that you can't fit it all in. And therefore, you have to uh, play catch up and the technology is there. And that's, of course, a good thing. But it, it's every day now. It's, oh, I've got an extra half hour. I can squeeze in another episode of, of Fleabag or, or, or something. And so it's just feeling that it's becoming too much of a good thing. And why is there so much pressure to catch up? You mentioned in your piece that you accidentally spoiled someone's enjoyment of Fleabag by mentioning something that we won't disappoint listeners by talking about. We are not going to spoil anybody's enjoyment today. No. No, well, the thing is, I noticed conversations in the office, people having like secret, furtive conversations about uh, what they've watched the night before. 
And that's because people, they say, don't talk about it. I haven't seen that episode yet. I haven't caught up. Um, and, uh, and so you never quite know whether you can talk about things or, or, or not. So that's just an, an extra kind of burden, I feel. Emma, you watch most of these programmes before anyone else does. So do you have any friends as a result? Because you presumably <laughs> can't talk about anything with them. Have I alienated all my friends? The hardest thing actually used to be when things like The Apprentice were really big, you know, when everyone watched those together. And I would have to sit with my flatmate and pretend I didn't know what was going to happen next. And say, oh, that's surprising, isn't it? When obviously I knew exactly what was going to happen. So... Actually, I can, I'm quite happy to watch things more than once. And I quite like the difference between, you know, watching it, making notes while I'm watching it on a small screen on a laptop for work and then watching it with other people, especially if it's something shocking where people are gasping or something funny and it just comes to life when people are laughing. So, you know, I managed to retain a few friends to answer your question. <laughs> Do you think we're going through a really good era of television at the moment, Emma? It's an absolutely amazing era of television and it it's really kind of to cinema's detriment, I think, because cinema's become very expensive to go to go and see a film and also... It started to split into big blockbuster films that are for actors just sort of being in front of a green screen, not fantastic characters, a bit sort of paint by numbers. All these little independent films which might have really meaty, exciting scripts, but no one's going to see them. Whereas on TV, you've got the chance to develop a character over 10 hours, sometimes 20 hours, and you have these amazing scripts that people actually engage with. So you've got people like Richard Gere, Julia Roberts, Hugh Grant, big film stars coming over to TV because the material's so good. And is there less of a compulsion, Mark, about watching films, for instance? Are people still going to the cinema or are they trying to catch up on the latest blockbuster at home before one of their friends mentions it? I don't know, but I went past the... Um cinema near me the other day and it seemed like it was a Friday evening and it seemed like it was completely abandoned and I don't know whether that's because everybody's um, sitting at home but I think that the previous point we're making that I think there's a lot of a lot more competition now and so it seems that you know because of Netflix and then Apple Google all getting in on the act it seems like the the BBC and ITV are also sort of raising their their game hugely which is fantastic for the consumer but I just don't know how everybody how you, how you fit it all in, that's my point. It's definitely the case that I think if a film's out, people say, oh, have you seen that yet? Whereas if it's a TV thing, you're just expected to have seen it. Like, this happened and therefore we want to talk about it. There's such an immediacy with TV, whereas I think cinema people understand that you might not be there at opening weekend, you might catch up with it later. Yeah, somebody wrote a piece about how wonderful Fleabag uh, has been, but also just hoping and praying that there isn't a follow-up and just let it be. And... I feel the same way with, with Bodyguard, for example. I mean, that was a case where I came to it a little bit late because everybody was talking about it and then find you catch up and it was you know fantastic and it was gripping and everything else. But now I'm dreading the fact that there's probably going to be a series two and then a series three and, and, and on we go. And I just wish we could just let things be. And that's, that's an interesting point, isn't it, Emma, that there are some series that everyone gets incredibly gripped by for the first few series such as Homeland and then people switch off after series five because it gets too complicated or the original immediacy of it seems to have gone and they're just running it on again House of Cards is probably another example are, are script writers getting a bit carried away with the initial success and actually not learning lessons from really iconic series like Faulty Towers for instance which only broadcast I think it was 12 episodes 
Yeah, and obviously that's what Fleabag's trying to do by only having these two series is to to stay perfect, to stay really compact and concise. I think it's hard. If you've been waiting for years for someone to pick up your script, it goes massive on BBC or ITV and they say, oh, please give us a series too. It's very hard to say, oh, for quality reasons, I'm not going to do that when your career is just kicking off. So I totally sympathise. However, it is dangerous. And I wish people would learn the lessons from Broadchurch, series one of which was so brilliant. And series two was a real letdown. And they had to really pull it back with series three, which was very good. And I wish, for instance, with The Missing, the first two series of that were fantastic. And then there was the spin-off Baptiste, which hasn't really lived up to that initial promise. I wish that they would just allow those writers to do completely new stories with new characters but I can understand also if if you're desperate as a channel say for BBC how often do they get uh, a drama that gets the response that Bodyguard got it's very rare so again it takes a brave commissioner to go oh we won't bother with series two when they know that they're going to get huge ratings yeah I feel I felt the same I don't know about you Emma but I thought the same thing about the affair we've now we're now waiting I think series five and um I feel in some ways now torn because I thought series four was so protracted and, you know, the Ruth Wilson character was killed off, spoiler alert. Um, and, How dare you? And, 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 now, and now I feel slightly, when it comes back on, I need to watch it because otherwise I'll be kind of, I will be being disloyal because I've, I've been watching it so far for so long. And that's an example, that's Sky Atlantic, isn't it, I think, where... It would have been far better. I mean, again, the first series was was brilliant. And it actually, progressively, it's got worse and worse as one's gone along. Yeah, and it happens with so many things. I was actually late to the party with Heroes and I watched series one, loved it. And my friend said, just stop there for your own sake because otherwise you'll feel so sad that all these characters you love and, and this premise that you love has just sort of gone awry. And it, it does happen an awful lot. There are very few series I can name that finish stronger than they start, which is, you know, unfortunate. Mm. And we haven't even got on to film spin-offs such as Sex and the City 1 and 2, which are one of the greatest crimes against TV. Well, in, that's uh, the history, thing about Sex and the City. I, this is a big talking point for me because I actually think that got better and better every single oh, series. Oh, it really I did thought. until the film. Yeah, series 6 was incredible and what a way to end beautiful ending. And then comes the film. But because, especially because it's a relationship drama, you feel so invested in those characters. I have to go to the film. Did, did you find you had to go to the second film as well? Just because no, you're so no, invested? No, I had to. You, I, you I, I've, I've spent years in therapy trying to wipe film one from my <laughs> mind, actually. It was deeply upsetting. Making Steve a cheat was just too far for me. I, I, yeah, anyway, there are many problems with that film. <laughs> so, so to finish, Mark, what do you recommend that people watch and uh, without any spoilers, if possible? Well, it's, it's more I just think that you've got to be really discerning. And I think that you've got to, if you don't like something and everybody's talking about it, there's nothing wrong with just excluding yourself from that and saying, I don't watch that and, and being strong about that. Otherwise, you're going to be you're going to be chasing your tail all, all the time. Having said that, I think everybody should watch Fleabag <laughs> and catch up because I think it's moving us into a, a slightly different sort of genre. It's, it's taking a very honest, pragmatic you know, view, view of the world, which people can relate to. And But as we were discussing earlier, it's quite interesting that even with uh, Line of Duty now, that I, I sense a slight backlash that it's becoming a little bit too complicated for its own good now. So again, I just think that you, you, you should try these things, but don't feel obliged to, to catch up all the time. 
Emma? Yeah, I do agree with that. I mean, my job is basically to watch episode one of a lot of things. So it's quite good because I get a broad overview and then I can decide what I'm going to go further into. Fleabag is exceptional. It's brilliant. Definitely try and see the little Channel 4 series called Home, which is Rufus Jones's comedy about... Uh, a Syrian immigrant coming in and living with a family, which doesn't really sound right for comedy, but it is brilliant and very original. Check that out. The Victim, which is on BBC One, stripped across the week, is really great drama, really loads of twists and turns. I know that there's a lot to watch and I know that that can sometimes feel intimidating. Look, I haven't seen The Wire yet and and that is technically my job to have watched these kind of things. So I I understand the pressure. But this is fantastic. It's a fantastic time to to have TV. Think of the days where there are only three channels and it was grainy and it was really rubbish quality. We do not want to be back there. This is a glorious time and I would advise to just enjoy it. Can I I ask you one question? Just the other day, someone said to me, we were discussing about Catch Up and I and they said, have you seen, have you watched The Amazing Mrs. Maisel? Oh, yes. And saying it's, it's the best thing ever on television and I've got to catch up. Would you recommend that? I quite like it. I wouldn't perhaps go that far. But yeah, it's on Amazon Prime, which if you have a subscription for your delivery, you've got all this content there as well, which I think a lot of people don't know about. Yeah, and it's it's period and it's about a lady who is in a kind of very old-fashioned marriage and then she decides she wants to be a stand-up comedian and hijinks ensue. I think it's it looks beautiful. It's very visually arresting. The characters are very likeable. It's not my very favourite thing, but yeah, I think it's definitely worth checking out. Thanks, Emma and Mark. That's all for this week. If you enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe, rate and review on the iTunes store. We would love to hear from you. Pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed in the podcast, as well as an interview with Liz Truss and Roger Stone's diary. And we have a time-limited offer. 12 issues for just £12 plus a £20 John Lewis voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. (laughs) 